Welcome to The Gold Exchange with Keith Wiener, where we untangle market and policy complexity using timeless economic principles. For show notes and archives, go to goldexchangepodcast.com. And now, on to today's episode. Hello again, and welcome to The Gold Exchange Podcast. I'm John Flaherty, and I'm here with Keith Wiener, founder and CEO of Monetary Metals. Today, we're going to talk about profits. Profit is the return to those actors who put their capital at risk, and the profit motive is one of the key tenets of Western civilization. What, therefore, could possibly be wrong with profits? Well, it turns out there might be something going on beneath the surface that we need to shine a light on. To do that, we turn to Keith and some key principles he addresses in his recent article, Where Do Your Profits Come From? So, Keith, to start, just want to put on the table, do you agree that profits are a good thing? In a free market, yes. In a free market, the only way to make a profit is by serving your customer. You have to create economic value in some way. You're buying something, adding value to it, buying more things, combining them together, adding value, and then selling the output for greater than some of the costs. And that profit is the proof that you've done good. And in fact, all you have to know is you've made a profit, and that is the proof. You don't have to try to trace through all of the elements, you know, there's a famous economic story, I Pencil, written by Leonard Reed, that traces all of the things that go into manufacturing a pencil from the graphite and the steel and the wood and the rubber and all those different places. And none of those people really understand how to make a pencil. They just know how to make their component and they make a profit. The fact of making a profit is sufficient without any further, it's necessary and sufficient condition. However, in a not free market, where government is interfering in the market, then it's possible to make a profit, not for creating value, but perhaps even for destroying value. And a big theme of my work is, how does that happen in a falling interest rate environment? Because that's the environment that we've been in. For most of the people that would be listening to this, it would either be their entire adult career or most of it. We've had a falling interest rate since 1981. Right. So you sort of hint at this in the title of your article, What's Going Wrong with Profits? And you start by drawing a distinction between speculation and true investment and how the latter has been all but extinguished by the Fed. Please help us define these terms, speculation and true investment. Well, I think the key distinction, a lot of people hear the word speculation and they think either gamble or high risk you know, is what speculation means. And then they turn around and say, all investment has risk. Therefore, all investment, speculation is investment, investment is speculation. No, no, no. I'm making a distinction that's black and white. It's not a degree of risk. In investment, you're financing the creation of either production of something new entirely, or at least additional production of something that already exists. You're financing added production that doesn't exist at the time of your investment. And your investment is what enables that production. So, for example, if I want to go into the business of manufacturing pencils, to use the example of iPencil a minute earlier, I need to buy a certain set of machines and tools to do so, and a building, presumably, to put those tools in. So I turn to investors and say, I want to either raise equity capital from you, or I want to borrow from you, or some combination of both, and here's my business plan. I'm going to buy this building, I'm going to buy all these tools, assemble them, and then I can stamp out a million pencils a day, or whatever it is, and that's how I'm going to make money. And that's how you're going to get repaid. My manufacturing of pencils is going to give me one cent profit per pencil times a million pencils a day is $10,000 a day in profit. My mortgage on all of this that I owe you is 
whatever $30,000 a month, I can easily service the mortgage and please invest with me. Assuming I'm successful, then the profit to the investor comes from my increase in production. And they're getting essentially part of that production because they enabled it with their money. Speculation is when you're not actually financing anything. And so I'll go back to my favorite punching bag, which is Bitcoin. But the same thing applies to all markets in the falling interest rate environment. I buy Bitcoin and today it's, what, $41,000. I'm not financing anything by doing that. I'm literally giving $41,000 to someone who has a Bitcoin. And I'm turning over some savings to him that he can go spend or whatever because I expect someone is going to buy it off of me for, let's say, $82,000. I'm going to double my money. That's my belief. That's why I'm doing this. And suppose I'm right and it goes to 82000 and I sell it. Well, I now have my original $41,000 in capital back plus another $41,000 in someone else's capital, essentially, that I can now consume. I can now spend it. We haven't enabled by any of these transactions any new production. I'm just going to go and spend it on something that already got financed some other means. I'm just going to go consume. And so the difference between investment and speculation Investment is creating new production. Speculation is consuming results of something that's already in production. And of course, all machines that produce wear out. So in the process of production, a little bit of the productive capacity is itself consumed. And so this is a process of consuming capital. So you state in your article that where your profits come from matters a great deal. Why is this? That economic distinction of either you're creating more or enabling the creation of more productive capacity versus just consuming productive capacity, that's the difference between a civilization that is ascending and a civilization that is descending. I recently had an interesting thing happen. I'm a member of a private email list for finance professionals that adhere to the Austrian school of thinking of economics. So I had posted the press release that we Monetary Metals just did that we had issued a gold bond, the first one since FDR broke the gold standard in 1933. We issued this at the end of 2020, and now here we are late in 2021, and and the bond matured, and investors are repaid, and I just thought, okay, these guys are finance professionals, they'd be interested in seeing that gold being used to finance something rather than as a speculative bet. And there was somebody on the list, who's a very eminent person, economist, professor, very well-known person, who said, well, I'm sure that you know the only reason why it was able to be repaid is because the price of gold went down. Which I thought, first of all, it's kind of funny. I mean, here I am. I'm the one who issued that bond. You would think you would ask me about that before you would presume to say in a public forum, no less, but okay, whatever. But the whole thing to him, in his mind, wasn't really about financing anything. It was about speculation and making a directional bet on price. And so, of course, in speculation, you don't just have to bet on price going up. There's also possible to bet on price going down, right? You can borrow something, you know, like shorting a stock. You borrow shares and sell them short. It's a bet the price will go down. And it's the same mechanism. It just you want the price to go in the other direction. And that's what he assumed this was. And so I said, no, no, let me, let me clarify. It, we didn't succeed in this because the price of gold went down. We succeeded in this because the gold mine that we financed was successful in extracting gold out of the ground, which they could have done regardless of what the price was. Right? I mean, if you're digging gold out of the earth, assuming that you're competent at digging and assuming the earth has gold in it, you will get the gold regardless of where the price might happen to be. Anyway, what ensued after that was just a discussion about whether gold 
was a good asset class or whether you're better off putting your money into shares or real estate or whatever. And this is a, an email list about finance. And yet finance has descended, if I can use that analogy, into mere speculation. What's a bet on? Who to give your capital to to get what asset so that it will go up and someone else will give you their capital to buy that asset off of you later. And that's the difference between a civilization that's failing and a civilization that's growing. So you've already touched on this at a surface level, but this is a common theme that emerges among the articles that you've written, this concept that speculation, particularly the type that we're experiencing on a global scale, thanks to the manipulated and falling interest rate, is destroying the capital on which our civilization is founded. And this phenomenon is hidden in plain sight in the form of a bull market in just about every asset class, including, ironically, precious metals. I know it's probably unfair to ask you to explain the principle in just a few minutes, but I suspect you'll be up to the challenge. Do you want to take us a little deeper about how this capital is effectively destroyed? Thanks for setting me up there. <laughs> if I can't get that done in a minute, then uh, I fail, but I'll try. You know, Keynes, John Maynard Keynes is famous for saying a number of things. He talks about the euthanasia of the rentier, killing the saver who collects interest, who he, Keynes believed was a functionless parasite, his term. He said there's no surer way to overthrow the capitalist order. But I want to really emphasize capitalism, whenever aspects of it are allowed to function to any degree, that's the degree to which you have civilization. When you destroy all aspects of the free market, you destroy ultimately all aspects of production and man is reduced to the level of brutes and everything collapses. So when he says collapsing or overthrowing capitalism, he's really saying overthrowing civilization, although he doesn't you know, really believe that or fully understand that, I guess. And anyways, there's a long quote and at the end of the quote, he says, and you're engaging all the hidden forces of economics, which today our term for that would be incentives. You know, so you're, you're leveraging all the incentives, but in favor of destruction, and he's gloating and smirking that not one in a million can diagnose what it is. And since he had said currency debasement, everyone assumes he means inflation. I'm just old enough to remember the late 70s. Everybody talked about inflation every day. So for Keynes to say not one in a million can recognize it, he's either really glaringly stupid, which I do not believe, or he wasn't talking about inflation, he was talking about something else. What he's talking about is driving the interest rate to zero. And the reason why nobody can see how that's destroying is because that means an endless bull market. Asset prices are the inverse, roughly, or conceptually, you can say the asset price is the inverse of the interest rate. If the interest rate is cut in half, then the asset price roughly doubles. And so you have an endless bull market, and nobody can understand that this is destroying the world because everybody loves a bull market. You buy something, it goes up, you sell it, you make money. Everybody go to Las Vegas and buy new cars and jewelry for the wife and all those things, everybody's happy. And it's, it's inconceivable to them. And again, they're making a profit. So profit is good, right? How can this possibly be bad? And the answer is it's a process of capital destruction whereby each speculator is forking over some capital to the previous speculator who consumes at least part of it in the hopes that somebody else will fork over even more capital to him so that he can consume it. And that's what Keynes was envisioning, and I think he was smirking at the prospect of it. Thank you, Keith. So I want to bring this down as I've tried to understand this principle. I want to tie it to a real-world example from my own life and see if we can uh, 
help impart some understanding. This also, there was a comment in your article posed by one of the readers that sort of overlaps this. So here we go. So I bought a house across the street about two years ago, paid $275,000 for it. I sold it in the first quarter of this year for about $425,000. So a gross profit of $150,000 in less than two years. I also need to mention that I invested about $20,000 in the property before I sold it, including a new roof and a new AC unit. Also, I rented it out the entire time I owned it for just over double the mortgage, adding to my gross profits substantially. So Keith, I want to know, are you telling me that by engaging in this transaction, I'm contributing to the demise of Western civilization? It's your fault. Catch him. <laughs> Get him. I always try to say this in my articles, and I'll say it here as well. When the government and the central bank sets up a perverse incentive, we have to blame the root cause, which is the perverse incentive, not the people who take that incentive. And actually, this raises an interesting point because I've had this argument a number of times. And a number of people, often of the objectivist persuasion, try to say, well, come on, you're saying people are stupid. They can't see through the fake price signals and do the right thing that everyone is led to like lemmings over the cliff because they're just too stupid. I said, no, I'm not saying they're stupid. I'm saying that the pricing isn't fake. If the house is offered at 275 two years ago and that's what you bought it for, and then someone's offering 425 today and that's what you sold it for, the price signal is not fake. That's real. That really was 275000 That really was 425000 How are you supposed to say, well, sure, that's the price, the nominal price, being offered, you know, in the actual market at which prices houses are actually being bought and sold. But in my mind, there's a real house price, which I can calculate by adjusting for CPI or money supply or who knows what. Nobody can do that. And nobody should do that. I mean, if that's the price that things are being bought and sold, then all you can do is respond to that that price incentive. There is no other signal. I mean, you can hypothetically calculate what would it be if the interest rate weren't falling or something like that, but that's great for an academic paper. That's not great for somebody in the real estate business. So blame the Fed, don't blame the actor. And then as far as renting it out, well, there you're providing, you're actually providing value to the market. That there are a lot of people who don't want to buy a house that either don't qualify or don't choose to. And so they rent and um, that's a mutually beneficial transaction where you're providing the capital for the house and somebody is paying to rent it by the month. So I would exclude all that from the destroying Western civilization part. I just focus on the, the gain and the, the alleged gain in the house. Gotcha. I think there's a back end to this too, and that is how those, you say it matters where your profits come from, whether it's from speculation or from true investment. And I think you drew the distinction between the rental income versus just the price, nominal price going up and the gain resulting from that but also the how those profits are spent, right? So I took the profits from that transaction and, and did a few things with it. I just took a vacation to Hawaii. So I did consume part of that. Would that be part of the capital, my neighbor's capital that's now destroyed? Yes, it's your neighbor's capital or more likely his bank's capital because he borrowed the money to buy it from you for 425, I would guess. And it's really not the bank's capital, it's actually... <laughs> the depositors. So depending on what bank you borrowed the money from, it could actually be your capital that you have deposited <laughs> at that bank. <laughs> you didn't think of that, did you, huh? <laughs> so it's a giant circular 
thing, but you make an interesting point that, of course, the person who receives that capital or that capital gain, somebody else's capital, doesn't have to, it's not obligated to consume it. And if he invests it, again, not speculation, but invest. So monetary metals, we have at least two, I think more, but at least two shareholders that I personally know had made big speculative gains in cryptocurrencies and then invested in monetary metals, one or more of our equity rounds, you know, to finance this business. And so it's possible for somebody to take speculative gain and put it into an investment that's leading to the creation of, of more value. That's certainly possible. And I imagine that most speculators do that to some degree or another. But most speculators also consume to some degree or another. And so there's a capital consumption component that, yes, as you rightfully point out, isn't 100% of all the speculative gains isn't being consumed. It's some fraction thereof that's less than 100%, but certainly more than zero. So what about gains that are used to, say, pay down debt? Where would that fall in the creation or destruction camps? Yeah, it's, it's not destructive. I guess I'd say that you have to know more about the context of what was the debt used for. And so, if, I mean, if you borrowed money to go to Las Vegas last year and got yourself into $50,000 of gambling debt and then had a house flip work out and you paid off the gambling debt with that, then I'd say, well, the capital destruction occurred last year and now you're paying off the debt this year. So I'd say the repayment of the debt is itself neutral. It's kind of what was the debt used for that's kind of determining that. Right. So we have these nuances going on on both sides, it seems, that the source of the profit matters. And also, once those profits are realized, the consumption element can occur, but also it could be reinvested into productive purposes. Like the the final example I was going to give, and it's a shameless plug, but I took part of those gains and bought some gold and invested them in, in monetary metals deals. So I want to hear that, that I'm doing my part, Keith. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when you invest gold at monetary metals, then that, that gold is being used to finance something productive. Our leases are, are helping finance businesses that are either manufacturing or distributing or retailing. And then our, our bonds are financing companies that are producing a, a gold income. So if anybody has any speculative gains that they want to invest, you know, give us a call. But yeah, you know, the real economy is obviously big and it's messy. I mean, you have, you have everything from just pure destruction to pure creativity. And often, often one person is mixed. There's certainly some very high profile, prominent billionaire businessmen who on one hand are advocating that the government do something destructive, usually to subsidize one of their businesses. And on the other hand are, you know, creative powerhouses developing cool things and actually financing them and bringing them to fruition. And both are going on, you know, at the same time. And then the same thing with speculation. Somebody makes a $100,000 speculative gain. They consume 50 into a productive thing that creates more than $100,000 of fresh value. So on net, maybe in that case, it was positive for the economy. But overall, as the Fed is enabling a greater and greater rate, I mean, it's interesting the you said you made $150,000 in two years, but you made more than 50% in two years. So as a percentage level, the, the rate of speculative mania is getting very large in magnitude. 
And you know, is all of that being reinvested into productive things? The answer is no, of course not, for a lot of reasons. One is it's tempting to consume. You feel like you're getting rich. The so-called wealth effect, it's tempting to spend it because spending is fun. But then number two, because of other government policies, regulation and tax being two of them, but then also zoning, and there's a lot of other restrictions, there isn't necessarily a plethora of productive opportunities to invest in anyways. I mean, as the economy is just becoming more and more sclerotic, people are speculating in a fixed pool of assets that just keep going up and up in price. And that's part of the dynamic too. So before the interest rate was really under assault and we were in more or less a free market back on the gold standard, what role did speculation play in the free economy? I think we addressed this in a prior episode and I think you gave an example of you know, a land speculator who could foresee the path of growth in his hometown and buy a bunch of acreage on the outskirts of town, but in the path of development and reap the gains of that once the development got out there. Is that a quote unquote healthy speculation in a free market gold standard, say? Well, I would say that speculator, yes, is actually adding value because he's taking that presumably agricultural or wilderness land, giving the person who held it since whatever antiquity or since the Homestead Act or depending on where that land was, giving that person enough money to make that person go away happy. And now he's putting it in play so that as, as there's a demand for development and real estate, you know, coming out his corridor, that that property was available. It's not still being farmed or it's not still whatever raw wilderness. And I was going to say the other thing in the free market is agricultural speculation. The speculators are mitigating the risk of mother nature, which is fundamentally unpredictable, unheadable, you know, risk. And so the speculator is playing there and providing value to the market versus in an environment where the interest rate is not stable. The speculator is essentially front running the actions of the central bank, which is an entirely unhealthy and entirely different thing. We shouldn't have a central planner that's messing up our interest rate. In the United States before 1913, we didn't. All right. Well, that is all the time we have today. Keith, as usual, we appreciate your thoughtful insights on this important topic. Be sure to check out show notes for related content. And if you'd like to dive deeper on this topic, I believe episode 12 ties in with yield purchasing power goes deeper. Thank you for joining us on the Gold Exchange. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Go to goldexchangepodcast.com to learn how you can earn a yield on gold paid in gold.